everyone. Welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about Mesopotamian bricks, uh, the Zapotec labyrinth, and Egyptian gods in Madagascar. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Just, uh, you know, today is New Year's Eve, Eve, and uh, yeah, we're just recording for the first time in a bit. And I had a nice little break and now we're back at it. So not really much, I don't think, in terms of UFO news or anything on the disclosure front, unless you've heard of anything. But uh, maybe we could do a quick end of the year summary and just kind of where we're seeing this going in the next year. What what was your favorite part, I guess, or the most important part of, um, you know, the UFO issue in the past year? And like, where do you see this going next year? Just to put uh, you on the spot. <laughs> I I know that Dave Grush said that he's going to write an op-ed soon. That's something I'm looking forward to. Elizondo is going to write a book. I don't understand what the hang-up with his book was. Like, was he doing that Dopser process thing? Yeah. I guess the issue is he has to, like, basically go back and forth with the um, Dopser office. That's the defense something review. <laughs> they, they review uh, people's books and, yeah, kind of tell them whether or not stuff is classified, like what could be uh, allowed in it, you know, what might compromise national security. Lou or David Grush, who who was pretty open about his experience with it, uh, have to go back and kind of alter their statements and then resubmit them. And uh, once the government's like, okay, this is, you're good to go, I guess they can publish it. Yeah, I guess there's been a bunch of back and forth, as one would imagine, uh, especially with Lou Elizondo and the stuff he's been talking about, because he kind of goes right up to the line when it comes to his uh, NDAs and security clearance stuff. And he's pretty good at saying stuff in a way where he's like, not really saying it, but you can kind of infer it. So I'm sure that was fun for that office to deal with. Yeah, that should be coming out within the next year. And you know, a lot of people kind of talking about it. There's murmurs of it uh, happening soon-ish. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, Rush's op-ed should be coming out as well. And that should be interesting. I wonder uh, if he's going to go any further than he already has, or if it's just another one of those pieces that brings this to the public's attention. But either way, it should be helpful. I, I just wonder if we're going to see like alien bodies in the New York Times, like op-ed section. <laughs> That'd be pretty wild. I think it's going to be about election shit. This is just my speculation, but like he seemed really like aggravated, I should say, in the last interview he gave. Maybe not aggravated, maybe like laser focused, maybe frustrated about how this process has gotten held up. Which interview? The last News Nation one he gave. Okay. I think he was giving the indication that people are going to be voting about this particular topic and that, like, we're going to see change in that avenue. I don't know exactly what he's going to write or what his opinion is going to be. Like, do you think he's going to give more information about his story or shit he's seen? Or do you think it's going to be more something that's like current events and like, because this is an election year too. I don't know. I mean, he he said he got cleared to say more stuff in that actual interview on News Nation. So where he revealed that he's going to be penning an op-ed. Oh. It made sense to me that, you know, the stuff that he had newly gotten cleared uh, with the Dobser office was going to be included in that since he had mentioned it within the same interview. Yeah, he also did mention that this might be an election issue, which um, it's an inevitable thing and something I am not looking forward to at all. Dude, that shit could get crazy. Imagine if they bring that up in a debate. It's uh, 
I don't know. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right now, I'm like definitely not trying to dive into fucking politics anytime soon. <laughs> I oh, feel God. you, dude. It's a nightmare. Because I know they've tossed it out in different debates. Dennis Kucinich gave a real interesting answer. I thought they were kind of unfair to him. The last time they tossed out the idea was in one of the Republican primary debates. And they were pretty dismissive of it. And I was kind of disappointed. That's my ex-governor, Chris Christie. <laughs> was he New York or Jersey? He Jersey. was Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Bridgegate, Damn. all that shit. What years was he governor? Uh, 2000 something to 2000 something. <laughs> I don't know. This next year is going to be interesting, to say the least. And uh, I think Lou, Lou's book is going to cause a stir. If you think about it. You know, he's been going back and forth and editing stuff all the while, all this Dave Grush congressional interest and all this stuff is going on. So I sort of wonder if he's going to be including that, you know, from his perspective or in, into his perspective as he's doing these edits. I think that would be pretty interesting to get his opinion on all the stuff as it's happening. I don't know. I don't know how long his fucking book would be at that point. So this book, imagine what could be in it. We only know like a speckled amount about Elizondo and we know the shit he said but part of the shit he said dude I don't know if you remember but he said shit about uh Guantanamo Bay and that is like some of the highest level security like imaginable I don't know it just seemed like the the shit that he was working around was like serious business it probably has to do with Atlantis <laughs> well, dude, you say that and laugh, but like, look at uh, SAIC, dude. Like, yeah, that's right. like, yeah, something like because uh, I think the idea is like the Atlantean civilization was like the precursor to the Egyptians, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, if you notice in those sculptures that the future one, which is like more female or feminine, it's holding the pyramid like above its face or above its head. Its outfit is so like blocky and awkward. It's really interesting. Whereas the one that's like past everything is very settled and like he's holding it like right at chest level, the pyramid. I don't know. I like to look at all of these because the guy has all sorts of these different. He would do like religious sculptures and a lot of them he would do would be of like Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Yeah. And this uh, is the guy who who was commissioned to build the statues adjacent to one of uh, SAIC's office buildings that Tom DeLong talks about. On top of that, too, when he's talking to Joe Rogan, Tom DeLong, I'm talking about when he's talking to Joe Rogan about his secret machines books and inserting something about Greek mythology. I believe it's when he's talking about the guy that was quote unquote, former NSA and CIA. I think he's alluding to that guy, Michael Hayden. Yeah. I don't know that for sure. I believe you would know that, <laughs> but I, cause I, even Joe Rogan looks it up and Tom gets all nervous about it, <laughs> but I'm like, why even bringing it up if you can't talk about it? So I don't know. It's all That's ridiculous. What he said, man. In another interview, he's like, go back and listen to my Rogan interview. Cause I, I got in a lot of trouble for that. For a lot of what I said in that. I just know that when he's saying that, uh, when he's telling that story, he makes it sound like that Michael Hayden guy was one of the people telling him, you should be thinking Greek or you should be thinking Atlantis. Yeah. When uh, it's fucking weird, bro. <laughs> like, uh, Let's get into that a little bit, actually. Yeah, let's do it. 
On that note, uh, in the past few weeks, there's been a few scientific articles that have come out that I wanted to kind of speak on. And the first one of those is there were a bunch of cave paintings found in caves in Madagascar in remote areas of the island that depicted motifs and symbols of ancient Egyptian gods. Uh, They don't really know how old these paintings are, but they assume they're about 2,000 years old. Uh, So yeah, these are prehistoric rock art drawings that have been discovered in the Adria Mamello Cave in western Madagascar. Uh, The dramatic discoveries contain several surprises, including hints at some remarkable cultural connections. At least three extinct animals of Madagascar may be depicted. Uh, They are thought to have been extinct for many centuries. A giant sloth, a lemur, elephant birds, and a giant tortoise. Uh, These were hand-drawn in black pigment and included 16 animals, six human forms, two animal-human hybrid forms, two geometric designs, and 16 examples of an M-shaped symbol. Egyptian connections are hinted at in eight major images, including a falcon, which is Horus, the bird-headed god Thoth, the ostrich goddess Ma'at, is that how you say it? Dude, my pronunciation would sound so lame. <laughs> M A apostrophe A T and two human animal figures, which were similar to Anubis, an ancient Egyptian god, usually depicted as a man with a canine head. Yeah, man, you got all these depictions of Egyptian gods on the island of Madagascar, which is like way down, I think, like three thousand miles away from Egypt. You know, way off the coast of Africa, and uh, there's they have the same exact motifs and depictions of Egyptian gods on the cave walls in remote areas of this island. I find that pretty wild. When we hear these stories, how old they are and how we were saying before, how they seem to like all borrow from each other in some weird way. They're all like cousins of each other uh, when we're talking about where these stories originated. Dude, Egypt is way up high in Africa, like northern Africa. And Madagascar is like the very southeast. So do you remember when I sent you the uh, story a while ago and it was about the South African tribe? I think they're called the Sand People. And it was talking about their beliefs and they're one of their beliefs. And they were talking about this entity called the Kagan. And the Kagan is like this praying mantis. Okay, the Kagan is a trickster who is able to shapeshift into the form of any animal. He is most frequently represented as a praying mantis, but also takes the form of a bull, a louse, a snake, and a caterpillar. His wife... I'm not even going to try to pronounce his that. wife. <laughs> the caterpillar's wife. Well, the, the only reason I'm continuing is because it said his wife is represented as a marmot or rather a cape hyrax and is known as the mother of bees. Uh, okay. I'm like bees because bees carry the pollen, right? And then they land on a flower and then like the whole cycle continues and like yep. they're they're the like spreader of life. And there's that theme in religion constantly where like even at a very basic level, people would believe like when it rained that God was like giving life to the earth. You know what I mean? And there was like this whole fucking like chaos order balance going on the duality yeah exactly that's one of the things that they uh when you're talking about myths i think his name's joseph campbell 
he'll slow down and be like the the coyote represents this and sometimes it's played by this uh fellow called the old man and he breaks down like native american lore very well in my opinion he talks about that chaos and order and what these things you said in their cave among many things they had two animal human hybrids and one of them appeared to be like anubis which was like a canine in a, a person and uh, was more of like a chaos god. And then you said the other one was Horus, who was like a falcon and a man. And that's like an order god. And the myth originally Osiris is ruler. And then Set is his brother, or Seth. And Set takes over, betrays Osiris. And he's like the chaos god. And then Horus eventually comes back and like restores order for the whole kingdom. I'm wondering how the fuck that got over to Madagascar? I I don't know how that makes, like, that's ultimately what I was thinking. Like, how does that get to Madagascar? Why are they drawing that? They hopped a helicopter. I don't know. It's nuts. Like, there's actually a few more interesting parts about this. You said 2,000 years? Yeah, that's their guess. Uh, They kind of extrapolate on that. Uh, The richly detailed and diverse art is notable also for what it doesn't show. No Christian, Muslim, or Hindu symbolism is depicted, and no relatively modern motifs such as the Latin alphabet, cars, airplanes, or flags. Even the ubiquitous zebu, which is cattle, the culturally paramount symbol of the last thousand years or more in Madagascar, are absent. It's hard to know exactly when these drawings were made. Direct dating of cave art is notoriously difficult, and proved so in this case as the black pigment was made from dark inorganic minerals with only a small component of charcoal we could use for radiocarbon dating. The presence of extinct animals and the lack of modern motifs and the alphabet used in modern Malagasy weigh heavily against the notion of a recent origin for the art. This is where it gets interesting. We suspect that the art is about 2,000 years old, dating back to the time of Cleopatra or before, based on the religious motifs. If it is, that is remarkable and useful to know because it may provide evidence for who colonized Madagascar and when. If, on the other hand, a set of pre-Christian religious beliefs has survived for centuries or even millennia among certain ethnic groups in very remote areas of the immense island, retaining recognizable influences from Egypt, Ethiopia, and Borneo. That would be perhaps more remarkable. Village informants hinted at that possibility by insisting that the quote-unquote sorcerer pictured was a member of the mysterious group of Vizima who lived in the forest nearby. So imagine that these local, like, current-day residents of Madagascar living in these remote areas are still worshipping, like, the ancient Egyptians. What? (laughs) Yo, you know what that's like is remember a while ago, I think it was the president of Mexico. He and this is besides the mummies and any of that bullshit. We talked about this like I DM'd it to you. This guy like fully believes like oh, the in fairies? elves or fairies or some shit <laughs> yeah. like that. And he just said it very like matter of factly. Like, yeah, this is what I think these are. And uh, after you read a lot of Peter Lavenda, because he talks a lot about like extreme beliefs with world leaders and different insane shit, even our own like presidents have believed, like literally believed. I'm numb to it, I feel like almost. It is elves. You're right. It was elves, the Mexico. Yeah, president. he shared a picture on Twitter of a of a <laughs> apparent elf. It's actually kind of creepy. 
But uh, <laughs> it's probably this, real. Yeah. Well, he said this photo was taken <laughs> three days ago by an engineer and appears to be an Aluxe or Alux, which is a type of small elf-like mythological creature in Mayan mythology. Everything is mystical, he concluded. I mean, it's it's kind of like some Uri Geller shit, like <laughs> yeah. a little bit, right? Dude, Uri's sharing everything. I saw a thing that you can become a citizen on. Did you see Uri Geller has an island? Is the first thing I should say. Did you know that? Like in real life, or in life? yeah, like in real life, Uri Geller like owns his own little island, and I think it's called the Island of Lom. And you can go become a citizen where. I believe it's up over in the area by where he lives because he lives in Israel, I think. <laughs> okay, yes, this is it. So Lamb Island, you you can become a citizen there. To my best recollection, this is how it works. You can go on like Uri Geller's website and for like a dollar or $10 or some like amount of money, you can become a dual citizen or a citizen of his little island that's called Lamb Island. And it's a small uninhabited island measuring approximately 100 by 50 meters off the east coast of Scotland. The lamb is flanked by two, quote, sheep dogs, North and South Dog Islands, which are basically small scaries. I don't know what any of this means. Yeah, what? He went on coast to coast and he was talking about it. And he was explaining that I think the birds run. You ever see those islands that are just overtaken by seagulls or birds? So like you can't even go on them because... Yeah, they're called rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I think that's what this island pretty much is. So you can't even go there. But... Like, What's the definition of like, like how, how big does... Our, I don't know. You know like... It's called a micronation, I think. And it like has to fit some fucking criteria. But anyway, it says that Uri Geller states that he believes that it is a hiding place for an ancient Egyptian treasure. What's the dimensions again? 100 by 50 meters. Is there a house there or just birds? From what I see, I'm just on the Wikipedia page, but it looks like it's just this little rock and the birds probably just hang out and guard <laughs> guard that Egyptian treasure. I wish I had that life. That's so cool. Uri Geller, regardless of what people think of him, he's went and spoken to world leaders and like, it's not like he's just like... I don't yeah, know. But even his friends are like, <laughs> it's so hard to follow. It's like someone could talk to him. Have you seen Hal Putoff's paper where he writes like it's like his defense of Uri Geller? It's a response to James Randi. I'd like to see an updated version of that. Of what? Hal Putoff's defense of Uri Geller. I think he's pointed to it for people to read what he originally wrote. Well, I was talking about like his Twitter account. Trying oh, to get, get Hal to write a paper defending Harry Geller's <laughs> yeah. Twitter account. Yeah, there's no defending that, dude. <laughs> Those are pretty bad. <laughs> what do you think that is? Why is he sharing shit that's like clearly... I'm not trying to insult her. I love Uri Geller, by the way. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, but like, I have to say, his Twitter account's pretty disappointing. The only thing I can say is ridiculous. That's another story Uri Geller tells. Is he says Warner von Braun like took him in his office and he opened a safe and handed him a piece of what I assume was like a crashed saucer. And Uri said it felt alive. And then another story is that he took him into like some freezer room and showed him fucking bodies <laughs> in a freezer. Have you heard that story? 
No, but I, I assume it's true. Really? No. I don't, I don't, dude. I think that all no, the Warner Von Braun stories are so sketch to me. Whenever anyone tells me, like, oh, did you hear on Warner Von Braun's deathbed? He, can, I'm like, dude, Warner Von Braun sucked. <laughs> like, I don't think that he was, like, the man at all. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong books. But... <laughs> I those don't conspiracies. think so. I think you're reading the right book. Yeah, so. for real. Dude, those, but dude, remember the fucking Carol Rosen lady? Her shit sucked. Yeah. Like that conspiracy was so weak and they were banking on it. And uh, yeah, I've never seen anyone ever substantiate any of the Warner Von Braun shit. And that's a guy I'm constantly trying to read more about. If it's out there, I'd love to read it. But I don't know. He's still an interesting person historically. It's just like, I don't think he was like fucking Mr. America the way people make him out to be. I, I don't know, man. You go back far enough to like Brown Brothers Harriman. He might might be, depending who you ask. But uh, um, so yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> Egyptian gods off the coast in Madagascar. It's crazy just thinking how far that traveled and how like people very recently might still be thinking that still worshiping Egyptian uh, gods and religion. Oh yeah, we're we're super ignorant though in the West of all that shit. The Egyptians had all these different words and concepts to understand your mind and your soul. It's worth exploring if you're interested in exploring that type of subject. They had like something like 70 different words for your soul or parts of who you are. I found that really interesting. It was like a uh I don't know. I can see how it's like appealing to people because of how as far as uh what I understand, like ancient belief systems to go, it sounded like Egypt was one of the most thorough and like magical, you know, that like mystique around Egypt, even yeah. in the Bible, they make it sound like Egypt is where all the fucking magic comes from because like, it's like Vegas. Yeah, it's, it's not like, really. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> not Vegas. <laughs> Fiji or something. I don't know. It's I like don't Vegas. know. It's like a, uh, Ah, <laughs> uh, Harry Reid Airport is in Vegas. Um, is that is there an airport called Harry Reid Airport? Yeah, I think they renamed it. And there was like a UFO hanging out over it like last year at some point. Dang. I don't know what happened with that, but it makes sense. Interesting. Dude, Harry Reid, he was a big Mormon guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, dude, there's not a lot that like uh, I thought it was a big deal when Mitt Romney ran for president because like it's very not cut from the cloth of uh, in my opinion. I don't know. I'm not saying anything bad about Mormons at all. Just saying like it's interesting. Different parties too. both of those guys like uh, I don't know. That reminds <laughs> me Stephen Greenstreet is doing a space today. He was a Mormon, right? At yeah. one point. And that's why he's like going after Brandon Fugel. And um, oh, I didn't even think about that element to all this. Oh, is yeah. Brandon Fugel still is a Mormon, though, right? Green Street is not. Yep. Mm. Interesting, right? Yeah. Egyptians of Madagascar. Um, pretty cool. Uh, another super interesting story that came out was they found additional evidence uh, in Mesopotamia, I guess southern Mesopotamia specifically, of a really, really strong intensity in our geomagnetic field around. 3,000 years ago. So basically, there's been studies all over the world that sort of point to this giant spike in intensity. The closer you get to Mesopotamia or current day, you know, Iraq, the more intense the readings get. 
Yeah, they located uh, 32 Mesopotamian clay bricks, each inscribed with the name of one of the 12 kings. And they presume that those kings were the rulers at the times that those bricks were made. So they took the readings from the iron oxide within those clay bricks and determined the strength of the magnetic field at the time. Uh, that these bricks were fired. And depending on the length of each king's reign and how well we know the timing, they can basically date it very precisely. And the other interesting part is when you look at all of the data, you know, around the world, basically, like in Europe and in Africa and China, even around this specific time, which is around 3000 years ago, basically during the first millennium BC, at the beginning of it, there was a huge, huge spike in geomagnetism or like the Earth's magnetic field above Mesopotamia. And the readings get more and more intense as you get closer and closer to Mesopotamia. So I find that really interesting that at the time of the Bronze Age collapse, essentially, and at the start of the Greek Dark Ages, this really, really big spike happened. And the other interesting part is that it kind of moved over a thousand years or so. The general area of the strength in the magnetic field like moved from Mesopotamia to basically like Greece. And then it disappeared from there. Yeah, very quickly. And then within that giant spike, there were uh, a lot of variations over that time even. It seemed like something really intense happened around Mesopotamia towards the end of the Bronze Age during the collapse and leading into the Greek Dark Ages. You know, it might be a coincidence. I just find that really interesting. And uh, yeah. This is something that we like very briefly touched on earlier when uh, we were talking about window areas and places in our world that like have weird religious like like locations that have seemed to have this importance and like mythology and one of the places that we were discussing was this place called Mount Hermon it's a it's a mountain range that encompasses i believe a lot of Syria and Lebanon and it's uh the highest point in Syria is considered Mount Hermon and Mount Hermon I don't know, I guess you call it like Babylonian mythology, mm -hmm. uh, like the uh, Gilgamesh myth. There's the story where Gilgamesh and Enkidu fight this creature called Humbaba. And where this fight takes place is on Mount Hermon. So like in that myth, it's like particularly significant. And then if you look at the uh, the Book of Enoch, for Christianity, they talk about how Mount Hermon was uh, where the watchers fell. And that was a particular spot. And then in the Bible, there's a story where Jesus exercises a demon on Mount Hermon. Why are all these different locations talking about Mount Hermon or like, I don't know. What do you think that there's like something underground or that there's something like within that area? Yeah, there's no real like reason or consensus on why like civilization just collapsed around that time that that thing, that thing appeared basically. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what kind of connection would be there. Maybe it, like because we, we talk about the geomagnetic field, the Schumann residence and that and that paper written by uh you know, Michael Aquino and that other guy about mind war. But yeah, there's a general idea that the electromagnetic field is, and, and certain disturbances within it can have certain effects on, you know, human behavior. So that that's kind of where I see something like a really big spike in the electromagnetic 
field or in the you know magnetic field of Earth having some sort of psychological or behavioral effect on the general population. There's studies actually that, that were done by I believe SAIC or you know at least the DIA where they I think it's called like geo geotherm geomagnetic effects study or something. Let me look it up real quick actually. Yeah, this is from the SRI uh, results of geophysical analysis on remote viewing. It says for many years man has speculated that relationships exist between various biological functions and solar activity or its resulting geophysical activity. Some empirical observations on the quality of RV sessions during periods of known solar activity led to the idea that a screening of solar geophysical variables for correlations might be fruitful. As a starting point, human beings have been shown to be sensitive to certain forms of electromagnetic radiation that are known to exist in the geophysical environment. There's also some evidence that certain aspects of human behavior and performance are related to changes in yet other aspects of the geophysical environment. An important question relative to remote viewing performance is the extent to which the trainee's performance is subject to such electromagnetic or geophysical factors. Investigation of this question is necessary in the course of developing a reliable RV capability. Damn. Dude, SRI did that first Uri Geller experiment in 1973. So that means that was 11 years after that, they were still in the mix. This book, Cycles of Heaven, kind of talks about what happens to certain certain animals that are exposed to certain frequencies within the electromagnetic spectrum. As for what can happen to living beings in such fields, some of the evidence is quite alarming. In one German experiment, honeybees were confined to an area containing a field of 50 hertz at 6,000 volts per meter. The bees became not only very restless, but so aggressive that they began to attack each other. Broods inside the hive were destroyed. Newly populated hives were abandoned in three days, while one whole hive inadvertently committed mass suicide by blocking the entrance to their hive, their normal defense against attackers from outside, and suffocating. So that kind of thing where a certain frequency is hit, affecting behavior in such a dramatic way. I mean, this is bees, but like on a scale of like the planetary you know, magnetic field. Uh, sure. I, I wonder what kind of effects that could have on a human civilization as, say, a beehive. I think Andrea Puhark mentioned a similar experiment with the mice and how the mice became more aggressive and irritable. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's really difficult because it doesn't really leave a footprint from what I understand. So from what you're saying, like geographically, that region of Mesopotamia or what people would call like Sumer, like that region is like a particular hotspot of this type of activity, or at least it was in that pocket of years, it seems yeah. like. Interesting. Yeah, like specifically where Mesopotamia was is where this geomagnetic spike occurred specifically at the collapse of the Bronze Age. Which was when, like 1000 to 600 BC? Yeah, around there. Okay. So 600 BC is that important year that John Keel points out. Yeah. I don't want to need to go down the whole thing, but he says 600 BC was when uh, Zoroaster began talking to entities and he was talking to an entity named uh, Ahura Mazda. And then uh, on a different part of the world, 
Confucius was alive. And then at a different part of the world, Buddha was alive. And then a different part, Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel. And like he was saying that all these different people were changing the philosophy of the world. And in a lot of these stories, talking to entities, supposedly. And uh, Zoroaster, for those who don't know, like he lived in Iran, which was at that time Persia. So all these things are nestled in close with each other. And apparently 600 BC, that particular pocket of time for these myths and belief systems, it played a huge role in like the whole philosophy of the world. Like the way John Keel describes it, he, he says that they had entered a new age when 600 BC had rolled around. And that is exactly when this thing disappeared. Interesting. This geomagnetic anomaly. You know, another weird side note on that too is, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that thing called, like it's called a lot of different things, but it's this like disease. I've heard its nickname called St. Vitus's dance. Have you heard of this? Like, or the dancing plague? Yes, I did. I posted a tweet on it. Okay. crazy. Yeah, people just like went fucking nuts and like started dancing in the in the streets and couldn't yes. stop dancing. Yeah. Yes, and uh, John Keel wrote. I don't want to say extensively, but like much more than other people have. And apparently, there's a real name for that condition called Korea. But that's besides the point. This whatever this was, he said that the last outbreak of it in this article I was reading was in 1841 in Syria. And I was like, whoa, dude, Syria is another, like, I always hear Syria thrown out as a name, as like a hotspot of all this shit. But it's because like all these stories, dude, that region had to have been ripe with this, whatever it is. All these stories are the people of that time's like attempt at trying to like make sense of it. But they didn't even have the fucking words, dude. They're probably so terrified of everything. (laughs) Not saying anything even happened. Like just with (laughs) life in general, it would be fucking terrifying to live with no technology or no sense of like, God damn, dude. Like think about how long we've been uh, relying on science and how many years mankind, it was just like pure fear. And then one of the important parts towards the end in the discussion of the paper uh, states, these results also have implications for the ongoing larger debate over the potential maximum intensity and rate of change of the geomagnetic field. Recent studies examining the archaeo intensity curve for the eastern Mediterranean from well-dated samples have revealed four geomagnetic spikes making up the LIAA, or the Levantine Iron Age anomaly, between 1050 and 550 BCE, with large field change rates greater than previously hypothesized were possible. Our five data points from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, who reigned from 604 to 562 BCE, display a wide range of intensity values from the short 42-year period, which may provide some corroboration of the rapid changes in geomagnetic field intensity during the last part of the LIAA. Yeah, these are really, really high uh, spikes and really intense changes when you look at the graph. So when we were breaking down Atlantis in a key point of at least how Plato describes the Atlantis myth is he says that the Greek god Poseidon had a mortal human wife named Cleito. And their 
first 10 children are five sets of twins and they are the first 10 rulers of what they called Atlantis, which then fell. And apparently there's been cycles of civilization and Atlantis is an example. I'm saying like the basic facts of the story, right? And the big part of that story is that what people considered a god, Poseidon, had a offspring with this human woman named Clato. Okay. That's just one part of the story I want to point out. Then take the story of the watchers. Cause it says that these, when the watchers came down, that they taught humans, what was it like astrology and like all sorts of different, like, it seemed like kind of helpful shit. I'm not going to lie. It didn't seem like uh, the worst things in the world that they were teaching people. But the other part of that story was that they were like taking human wives for themselves. But then I'm like, well, what, what the fuck are any of these been saying this at all? Like, why are these, why is this a recurring theme? I don't know. I still, I still don't have answers to those questions. We're going to dive into uh, Joseph Farrell's theory. What did he of, think? Of the cosmic war. The Enuma Elish, is that how you say it? That's the Sumerian creation epic. Right. But he calls it a war epic. He doesn't consider it like a creation uh, story. He thinks it was like, I mean, he doesn't think this. He hypothesizes this, that it, that it was a literal war that happens between quote unquote gods, whether you know they're human or uh, superhuman, demigod, whatever. If one is to believe the ancient Babylonian cosmic war epic, the Enuma Elish, then almost immediately upon the conclusion of that war, Marduk, the victor over the evil villain Tiamat, set out to, quote, measure the structure of the deep. The mind's almost subconscious reaction to this bit of information is to chuckle and write the statement off as yet more proof that the Enuma Elish is nothing but a bit of ancient Mesopotamian science fiction imagination run amok, with no basis in the realities of the necessities of a post-war, quote, cleanup of the rubble. Nothing, however, could be further from the truth. Uh, before proceeding to uncover that truth, however, it is necessary to reiterate three of the assumptions being made in this book. Uh, firstly, we have assumed that an elite survived that war, scattered throughout various places on planet Earth and possibly elsewhere in local space. Secondly, we have assumed that those elites had agendas, both open and hidden, and that among the open ones were the quickest possible reestablishment of the basic necessities of civilization and the quickest possible global extension of them. Given the devastation caused by that ancient cosmic war, however, this goal necessarily had to operate over centuries and millennia of painstaking effort. Such an effort and long-range goal thus required that these surviving elites had to organize themselves and their knowledge in such a fashion to be able to preserve that goal and the knowledge base even if the foundations of that knowledge were lost in the short term. This in turn required what I have referred to as the creation of a unified intention of symbol by which myths and stories were created to encode and preserve that science, technology, and history in multi-layered complex imagery and symbols that would be decodable once mankind had reached a similar pitch of scientific and social development as had been the case in the pre-war civilization. The possible hidden agendas have already been alluded to and point to the possible hidden manipulations of surviving technologies and very possibly of religion itself as some of the means to accomplish this long-term goal. Thus, we arrive at the third and final component of the assumptions that bear directly on this chapter, and that is that some fragments of the technology and scientific knowledge, how, howsoever rudimentary, survived that ancient cosmic war and were put to immediate use to reestablish and preserve those elements of civilization necessary for human survival and progress. 
So his idea is that the Enuma Elish cosmic war story, you know, he's hypothesizing that it's real and that there were survivors of this war and that those survivors, you know, basically had a plan to continue uh, human civilization on. They would basically pass down knowledge and science. I guess it, it basically went through like mystery schools and that kind of thing. Gotcha. And these secret societies. And this also plays off the idea that this is a worldwide civilization. Yes, exactly. Which a lot of people lose track of when they talk about Atlantis or any of these like free right. flood, like mythical societies. A lot of them will be like, oh, well, it's in one spot. It's exactly. in this spot in the Atlantic. And like, I think that's a big piece of what I got out of that was this shit was worldwide. And that ties in with what Tom talks about with like, you know, an outpost of, yes. of these surviving whatever, maybe non-human, maybe not. But like, you know, I don't want to really get into the Anunnaki thing where they're like genetic cousins of us or something like that. But um, that, that's like a similar theme. Then he talks about like signs of this, this like hidden elite, he calls it. So like survivors of this, of this ancient war guiding civilization along. Gary Nolan talks about that kind of idea too. Like this is a pretty common theme is, um, you know, some sort of, um, non-human intelligence guiding our civilization for one way, for one reason or another. And that this would actually be a pretty good reason is to continue civilization on the same path that they had pre-cosmic war. But like, we can only like get there if, until our science hits a certain point. And then I think the idea that they encoded like certain science and technologies into the ancient texts that would only be decipherable once civilization reached that point to where they could be deciphered is pretty interesting as well. The civilization that basically constructed all these megaliths, like the original megaliths around the world, were part of the society or the civilization that was engaged in this ancient war. These hidden elites after the war like set up these little outposts to kind of teach and, you know, spread that knowledge of science and ancient like technology and stuff out into these little like secret, you know, hidden uh, societies around the world. And that ties in kind of with Graham Hancock, where he's talking about, you know, teaching agriculture like all around the world, basically. And that's why it sprung up in so many different places all at once. Yeah, and I know a lot of people in their heads right now are thinking like, oh, well, that explains all these pyramids all over <laughs> the world. But the thing I want to point out about the pyramids is that the use and function of these pyramids did not appear to be like the same across the board. If we are playing devil's advocate and we say, all right, maybe there was some advanced civilization, that means that at least one can comfortably assume, I feel like, that that civilization existed on a spectrum. Like, just like our civilization does today, we have really advanced places. We have really not advanced places. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if there was some cataclysm, the different groups that would be existing and their interests after that cataclysm could be very, like, uh, I think people think about that part of it too simply because there could be for sure a sinister side to that where whatever wanted to exist and survive also wanted to take over and be in charge afterwards in some regards. And I think there was a little of that shit. I think that's what we saw in like Mexico and South America in the stories we hear about sacrificing to the gods. For all we know, that advanced civilization could have been warmongers. I don't want to like give an 
example, but like, let's say that Nestle guy that we talked about that wanted to own all the water. <laughs> what do you think that guy would be like after a cataclysm? Like he would probably set himself up. And that's why I like uh, Chris Mellon's message. And I don't know if you saw what I tweeted a couple weeks ago, but it was from that show uh, unidentified. And he was talking about when that ruler Cortez came to Mexico and how the people of Mexico thought that he was fulfilling some like ancient Aztec prophecy. Um, and it ended up being that like a bunch of innocent people ended up being killed because they just fell to their knees and worshiped these people as gods instead of like investigating them thoroughly because they got excited. At whatever they saw could be confirmation of their myth. Oh. Yeah, man. Uh, let's talk about whales. Oh, dude, I'm down. What did you find out about whales? Uh, they're, they're the piloting UFOs. Is that um, what you think? I heard a, one yeah. article said that they thought it was dolphins. Yeah, you cut open a Tic Tac and it's a dolphin f- flies out. Or With something. a headset on. <laughs> <laughs> God, that would be so sick. Echolocation is the key. Um, no, this is uh, actually pretty wild. There was a study done in 2018. It was done on orcas in captivity. They essentially were able to determine that orcas can try to mimic human speech like vocal mimicry. What? Yeah, like in the air, not in the air, but like they're not talking underwater and mimicking. It's like they're trying to mimic speech that happens in the air as opposed to underwater, I guess. So hold on, just so this makes more sense because I'm trying to make sense <laughs> of this myself. You Do you mean the, the whale literally comes out of the water to try to make these noises instead of like... Because uh, don't it. whales usually try to like, they'll be pretty deep underwater and they like kind of like i don't want to sound like dory from finding nemo <laughs> trying to speak whale but like they just kind of like moan right and then other whales like hear them yeah and then, but like, this is this isn't that this is um they're trying to communicate with us is what it sounds like all right the, the results reported here show that killer whales have evolved the ability to control sound production and qualify as open-ended vocal learners it can be argued that because our experimental design included in air rather than in water sounds the positive results obtained cannot directly reflect the killer whales capacity for learning to copy underwater sounds in their natural environment however our main objective was to test whether the killer whales were capable of learning novel sounds through imitative learning regardless of the type of sound in air versus in water the atypical nature of sounds that we use represents a strength rather than a weakness in relation to our main question because it evidences flexibility not just on what's copied but on how it's copied with regard to what is copied our data show that killer whales can copy sounds outside of their usual repertoire which is an important piece of information if one wants to know not only what a species does, but also what it can do under a variable set of circumstances. With regard to the issue of how it is copied, our data might indicate that the sensory, perceptual, and cognitive skills recruited in imitating in-air sounds are ancestral traits dating back to the terrestrial ancestors of cetaceans. Have they tried to piece together what the whales say when they come out? Because I know even in that one study we were looking at, it sounded like they just were like, hey, <laughs> but it didn't say much of a convo. Yeah, hello, and the name Amy, and uh, aha. I How guess. do they know the name? Because, the, uh, I don't know, they talk. Is it like speaking in English, it sounded like to them? Yeah, I mean, it's not like they don't understand it. They're just like, 
mimic it's mimicry. Oh. Uh, moreover, given the highly derived state of the sound producing apparatus uniquely evolved by cetaceans, the imitative capacities found in this study also underscore the fine-tuned ability of the species to flexibly produce accurate matches of heterospecific in-air sounds. So they're essentially like just tr they're trying to communicate with us. Like that that that's the main main takeaway. What happens when AI allows us to communicate with animals? I think all the animals would would start saying exactly what the supposed aliens are saying. And they would say, exactly. please stop killing the planet, please. <laughs> and it would be like, what does this mean? <laughs> it's like everyone's mad. Everyone's mad at us. Like, why the fuck do you think we're killing your boats? Like, <laughs> we're trying to send a message. Like, uh, ugh. Yeah, dude, that's going to be a uh, somber day. Dude, you know who would give a funny answer, I feel like, is the uh, raccoons. Raccoons would give a funny-ass answer. Ugh. Raccoons would be like, keep it up, guys. <laughs> In fact, leave more of your garbage out at night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective, I feel like. The whales, yeah. dude, the SeaWorld whales, I wouldn't even want to ask them. I know you've seen Coco the gorilla, right? Have you ever seen that yeah. where they like talk to the gorilla? Yeah. For those who don't know, apparently like uh, depending on the animal and the size of their brain, like even our pets, like dogs and cats, apparently I'm spitballing. But the number I read was a dog can know like 30 to like 50 words. Dude, my dog is going to start talking any day. Like it's so crazy. <laughs> how, like, she's they so know. smart. Yeah, and how they vocal pick up. she is is like she she makes these sounds and like uh, it's freaky sometimes because she's a she's a cattle dog and um one of the smartest dogs like ever and uh, it's it's wild how that communication works too even just like I don't know it's it's hard to explain we were talking about uh, like the gorilla and like how different animals depending on the size of their brain can learn supposedly I don't know this for fact but this is what I understand it to be is different animals depending on the size of their brain, have a limited amount of vocabulary, but it is there, even if it's small. Like we I, we think of dogs and cats, yeah, but like the when you use the Coco the Gorilla example, is Coco the Gorilla, dude? If I remember correctly, they were showing Coco like, uh, like mating, like they were showing her potential mates and she's letting her select from like a virtual screen like uh almost like tinder like <laughs> swiping left or right on other gorillas and they were uh what? also interested dude they, they gave her a pet cat and uh they like let her this sounds so depressing cat. <laughs> oh dude well wait till the cat dies and one of the, the cat died oh, and they I told oh it's really sad and they tell coco that the her cat died it was like hit by a car or something Jesus, horrible why and, uh how are you gonna let a gorilla's cat get hit by a car That's imagine crazy. being the guy who was watching the cat when it got hit how does that happen it's like the most important cat ever. <laughs> so they explain to Coco and Coco like just gives <laughs> the like crying, cat got hit by a car. Gives crying sign. And it was like Coco sad. Coco sad. And it oh was like God. fucking heart wrenching, dude. And that's a gorilla. And we think like, I don't know. I think shit would get weird fast. I got into one of these discussions one time a couple years ago. Because we were joking about how fucking weird, like, some of the shit we argue about in politics are. 
we brought up animals and one of us was, I think it was me. Unfortunately, I said like, what would you do if you got a knock on your door and it was a bear and the bear was just like, Hey, Klaus, I taught myself to talk. I want to live with you guys. I want to have rights. We so we started. This is a fucking weird Black Mirror episode so far, right? But we were talking about how, like, what political party do you think would be pro bear rights, and what one would be anti bear rights if that was even a thing? And it's like, dude, we got into a pretty heated because, like, that's that you could go that direction with robots too. It's like, when does a robot... We do not have the bandwidth as a species for It's that. so trippy. I don't know how culturally we're going to deal with those types of things. I know. But uh, it's it's a weird bridge. But I'm I'm positive. I'm positive towards AI. Like, we, we go through so much, like, um, suspension of disbelief when it comes to, like, how evil the people in power are. <laughs> like, humans, you know? Like, in order to, like, navigate our day-to-day life, we have to, like completely ignore like the horrible atrocities going on around us imagine another species is involved with that i mean we need it but it's uh it's not gonna be easy did you see what that condor man tweeted i've been reading a lot of this guy's tweets where he talks about the prevailing hypotheses for uap he said like where it's all of the above or something Just to summarize real quick, he says, one, extraterrestrial probes that were dropped off by a mothership to explore Earth. Two, interdimensional beings that act as tricksters and feed on negative emotions. And three, survivors of an ancient, survivors of an advanced ancient civilization. What if all three are true? I thought that was a really short, sweet way to put a lot of this is that's what I feel like a lot of these stories and myths indicate is those three like pivotal points. And that's what I think disclosure is going to surround is like those three particular topics I feel like have, whether they're true or false, I think that's what disclosure, when people use that word, that's what pops into my head is those three topics and what the fuck those things might mean. Oh man, it's going to be ugly. You think so? I think it'd be cool. I don't know. I So... I think when people think of disclosure, they think of it in a vacuum where like everyone in the world has the time to stop and uh, look at each other and be like, oh, this is um, here's a, this is a reset in our thinking as a species. But like, that's not not going to happen. I've been having this thought a lot recently where it's like people like us, you know, as hard as our lives can be sometimes, like I truly feel that like we're, for lack of a better term, like privileged in a way to be able to contemplate these ideas. It's not like we're in a spot where we're in the middle of a war. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're not fighting for survival day by day. Like so many people are, and we can actually like sit down and speculate. Like we have time to speculate on really, really mind bending shit when a lot of people are just trying to make it to the next day. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh it's, yeah dude it's it's something that's really hard to fully grasp i get what you're saying at least i think i do yeah it's like where do you how do you uh bring those people in the conversation when they don't even like it's not even a consideration because they have so much shit going on to where they're trying to survive you know it's like there, there's a lot of people like that and a lot of different cultural barriers and I don't know, man. It's just, I, that's why I think it's going to be a mess. I don't, I don't think it's going to be negative. I just think it's, it's not going to be as cut and dry as I think a lot of people think it will. Yeah. 
we're like disclosure. Oh, okay. Now we have free energy. Like it's not, I like, agree with that. There are also, so many fucking like factions and it's, it, it the human condition is still going to exist. Like it's probably will get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. I also feel like any huge revelation that they were to make, regardless of what it was, there's always going to be a group of people that has a huge problem with it. You know what I mean? Like the, no matter what it is, there's always going to be a group that is like, nope, not buying it. Yeah. And I'm yeah. curious how big that group will be or who those people will be, you know, or how that's even being gauged or if it's being gauged. I feel like for sure they're sitting on something. What does it feel like a dam is breaking is the metaphor I like to use is like, yeah. it's only a matter of time before a couple more books come out. Dude, with Scott Andrews, <laughs> when that book comes out, man, I feel like it's just like, oh man, I don't even know where to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be wild. Um, yeah, man, I think that's good. We've been going a while. So yeah, man, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I just wanted to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon and hangs out in the Discord and all that stuff. We'll have uh, two bonus episodes out um, some point next couple weeks. I just have to edit them. They're, they're already recorded. I'm just uh, holidays and all that. Yeah, I'll try to get on that as soon as possible. I also kind of uh, pressed the pause button on my writing, but hopefully soon enough I'll be getting back in, into that as well. Uh, also been uh, working on a website, so maybe we'll see uh, see how that goes in, in the next month or so, but it's coming along. It's a total pain in the ass, but <laughs> uh, always worth it to learn new things, I guess. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, coming in and uh, we'll see you next time. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.